Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball, and thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can get more from Milk Street by following us on Instagram at 177milkstreet. There you can find cooking tips, videos from our kitchen staff, and free recipes to change the way you cook. That's Instagram at 177MilkStreet. Now, please enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. For chef and YouTube host, Sola and Whaley, cooking ancient recipes has given her a whole new appreciation for the comforts of the modern kitchen. You know, I have a cast iron skillet and I can sear something at the same time as like stewing something and then bring it together. Personally, you know, I don't throw things into a pot and boil it all together because I don't have to. Coming up, making dinner the old fashioned way with Sola El Whaley. But first we're talking about a very current phenomenon between plus signs, ampersands and wordy mouthfuls You may have noticed a pattern in restaurant names over the last few years. To guide us through the new, the old, and the just plain overdone in restaurant branding, I'm joined by Maggie Hennessy. She's the author of the Bon Appetit article, The Great Restaurant Name, Vibe Shift. Maggie, welcome to Milk Street. 
Thank you so much for having me. The subject is naming restaurants <laughs> and uh, how that's changed in the last few years. Let's go back to earlier times. Gage and Tolner, Demonico's, Tadich Grill, La Tulipe, you know. Mm -hmm. Lots of personal names, uh, lots of simple concepts. But now we have a restaurant called Leave Rochelle Out of It. <laughs> which I Real mouthful. Which is memorable. <laughs> right. Uh, here's looking at you. Yeah. My name is Joe. Carthage must be destroyed <laughs> in Brooklyn. Okay. I guess that's a Roman restaurant. Right. Uh, so what's what's going on? Well, I think a few things are going on. Probably the most notable that I found through my reporting for this story was this idea that storytelling has become one of the biggest drivers of restaurant marketing. So, you know, a name of a restaurant in some ways holds the hopes and dreams of the owner. Um, it, it's, it's something personal. And it invites us in as the diner, in a sense, um, to, to claim part of that. It makes one wonder, though, in the end, maybe the name really doesn't matter. You know, the name is for launching the restaurant, but over time, you know, a place like Le Bernardin, which I guess was named after a group of monks, no, no one knows what it means. It just, it means really good seafood. Yes, now, right? yes. I, I, you know what I've been thinking a lot about lately is the French Laundry, which I think is right, another great right. example, right? Now when you hear French Laundry, I think Thomas Keller, right. I think fine dining, French prefix, gorgeous stone building. You know, it, it's taken on a, a life of its own. It's transcended the name, um, which I think is the ultimate goal for a restaurant. But there's also this other... There's part of this that people are taking themselves a little bit too seriously. Mm. There's this amazing quote about the restaurant Crane and Turtle. Here's what they wrote about it. In the case of Crane and Turtle, the value of that ampersand is that it sends, I just love this, a signal to investors and potential diners. Here is a restaurant that will be chef-driven, that will look cool and contemporary, that will speak in the culinary language of now. There's a word for that, which I won't say on the air, but I mean, it's like, really? I mean, the ampersand does all that heavy lifting, does it really? Well, I guess it's funny because for me, the plus sign did, you know, for 2010, right. just out of culinary school, just had her Alice Waters epiphany, wanting to be taken seriously, insufferably corresponding all of her email in lowercase, right. you know, that in a way it was sort of like, this is the type of hipster that I am. I guess like the ampersand, it, it, it's funny because that the period that of time, you know, for me that this whole story started with, with flour and water in San Francisco is it spoke to this kind of elemental self-effacing minimalism of the plate, you know, that it's down to its barest elements, flour and water. And every, Detail speaks to that, you know, the the naked wood tables, this right. very simple Italian but hyper-local Bay Area food. And wrapped into that is this, like, whole vibe, this, you know, like, it's right. it's cool. We're going to play the music, like, a little too loud. We're going to have the lights a little too low. And, and for some reason, even the name itself, for me, almost seemed to say everything that I wanted to project about myself at the time. But, but you bring up a good point, though, which is really interesting, which is a great brand is consistent mm -hmm. throughout every aspect of the brand. So with flour and water, all lowercase, <laughs> is very basic. Yeah. And if the tables are basic and everything about the restaurant is of a piece, then maybe that naming convention works. Yeah. But if you go to leave Rochelle out of it, <laughs> I'm not quite sure <laughs> – what the tables are supposed to look like, you know what I mean? Mm -mm. So another convention you mentioned is the use of possessive first names and especially women's names. Yeah. So what do you think about that trend? Yeah, that that was an interesting one, the homages to women. I think there are several things going on. This idea of the the warmth and nostalgia of granny cooking, but it's also in a sense almost an explicit reaction against this idea of men as the auteurs of restaurant genius, right? Like granny cooking didn't get the due it should. And the other piece of this nostalgia, the the granny's cooking, uh, the first name possessive is, is it's a bit of a warm hug in response to the past few years we've had that have just, you know, been tough on many levels. You pick, pick your disaster, pick, right. you know, 
And then, of course, there are the animal names, the spotted pig, the reluctant frog, the fox and hound. The English pubs have done that for hundreds of years, yeah. I guess, right? Animals are always kind of around, you know, like Compere Lopin, Nina Compton's New Orleans restaurant. The name Brother Rabbit references this mischievous rabbit that was featured in the folk tales she grew up reading in St. Lucia. And so yeah. when she was researching Louisiana history for the restaurant, she learned that that same folktale was originally written in Creole French. So it connected, you know, the, the hmm. native and adoptive homes. And, and she does that on the menu, too. Some restaurants want to connect you to the past and tradition. Other restaurants want to tell a story about the future, I guess. Yeah. And I was thinking about Milk Street and whether it was a torture for you to name Milk Street. And what if you had been on like Leatherman or Pearl Street? Because <laughs> you are on Milk Street. Well, it gives you, and this goes, I think, to what you're talking about. It tells a story about a real, it's a real place. Yeah, it's a real place. It really is on Milk Street. Yeah. You know, and uh, and so it, it gives you a sense of being located somewhere in the world. It's not just all made up. And I think I think that's one thing we haven't talked about. Is mm. I love the names that have, you know, it's like Old Mill Road, right? I mean, yeah. it, it describes something that's real. It's, it's located somewhere in space and time. And some of these names, they actually relate to something real about the place and the restaurant, which I think is great, right? I do too. You know, there, for example, there's this restaurant in Tampa, On Swan, that's On Swan Street. Perfect. And it actually means something. <laughs> I love that. That's a great name. Isn't it? On Swan. Yeah, oh, come that's, on. That's good. Yeah. You know, it just feels elegant to say it, which I think that's part of the draw, too. So is there one restaurant you've come across that was, um, you know, really memorable or really speaks to this trend of curious naming? One of the things I've kind of enjoyed is since I wrote this, now people will text me, you know, and say like, here's this one with the plus sign or this one ends in a period. I do remember several years ago at the height of this, you know, the ampersands and all that, there was actually a wine bar in Chicago that opened called ampersand. It was sort of like <laughs> reaching <laughs> satirical levels, you know. <laughs> Maggie, uh, it's been really fun. You uh, too. What a joy. Yeah. Thank you. I now have 50 ways not to name a restaurant. Thank you. <laughs> that was food and drink journalist Maggie Hennessy, author of the Bon Appetit article, the great restaurant named Vibe Shift. Now my co-host, Sarah Malt and I are ready to take on your calls. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101. She also stars in Sarah's weeknight meals on public television. Chris, before we get started here, I want to read you an email from a listener, a new fan named Maggie Cooper. It's just so sweet. So here goes. Ever since COVID began, I've been wanting to reach out to both of you. I keep trying to come up with cooking or baking questions, and this is always in the front of my head instead. I would not be able to call in because even writing this now, I get very emotional. So here's what I want to say to you both and to your wonderful program my daughter taught me about Milk Street right after COVID started. She'd been an avid listener, and I began listening then, too. I just want you to know that you guys saved me. I could not listen to any news, could not handle more stress, and your wonderful Milk Street podcast seriously got me through and continues to get me through this very strange time. That's nice. That's so. You know what that reminds me of? After September 11th, I was doing a live call-in show on the Food Network, and Food Network stopped all programming. And people started reaching out and saying, we want it, we need it, we need it, please, please put it back on. So we did. We came back on. And then we got letters like this. Thank you so much. People need – food is such a unifier. you know. And through hard times, it really does get you through. At any rate, thank you, Maggie. What a nice email. Maybe, maybe I should listen to this podcast. <laughs> Get me through the hard times, maybe. Right. That would be good. That's a very nice look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mary from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Mary, how can we help you? Um, I've been seeing a lot of recipes lately calling for English cucumbers and even yep. Persian cucumbers. Yeah. But I'm at a place that has a lot of good old-fashioned American cucumbers, and the English cucumbers I've seen in the store are kind of unimpressive. And I've never even seen a Persian cucumber. So my question is, is it worth it 
to seek out a good English cucumber or even a Persian cucumber? Or can I just substitute the good old-fashioned cucumbers I already have on hand? Yeah, you can use those. I mean, the English cucumber's uh, not as thick. It tends to be longer. The skin is not as thick or bitter as a typical American cucumber. I do think that an English cucumber tends to have less water content. They're a little firmer, which I like. But no, you can certainly substitute it. Um, You know, some people say you don't have to seed an English cucumber. I disagree. I think you should. But the seeds are smaller. You can get away with it with not seeding them. But no, if you seed an American cucumber, it's fine. Not a problem. Let me just define a few things. So the English cucumber, also known as the quote-unquote seedless, although it does have seeds, is the long, thin one that's been wrapped in plastic. That's how you find it because the skin is so thin that it tends to go bad faster. The Persian cucumbers are small. They're about six inches and pretty thin and also very thin skin and tender seeds. You can eat both the skin and the seeds. You don't have to peel them. And they, of the three of them, are the most perishable. So the real reason to go with an English or a Persian, and I put those two in the same categories, is that they don't ever have that bitter taste that an American cucumber mm. can have. In the American category, the one that I like the most when you can find it, which is the one they use for dill pickles, is the Kirby. It looks like a dill pickle. You know, it's more bumpy. It's not got a smooth skin. You do have to peel them. They do have tougher seeds, but they're really yummy. But they're not around all that often. If you ever find yourself with a bitter cucumber, definitely salt it and let it sit. Sounds like I need to find Persian cucumbers. They're fine, yeah. but they are very perishable. I mean, you have to go through them in like a week <laughs> or less. So just understand that. Great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need a hand in the kitchen, give us a call, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Anne Levins from Albany, New York. Hi, Anne. How can we help you today? Well, I have this aspirational strata. <laughs> it's smooth. Custardy, rich, flavorful, with all kinds of wonderful meat and vegetable textures and tastes and some unctuous spice to bring it all together. But what I get is watery, grainy, and bland. So I just turn to you folks for some counsel on how to finesse a really great strata. Well, tell us what you're doing to begin with. I mean, what are the ingredients besides eggs, vegetables, and meat? And bread. Right, the bread. That's pretty much all of them. The bread is usually very, very dry. It's a plain, like, French or Italian bread cut up into pieces. Sometimes I'll toast it. The vegetables, if it's spinach, then I know to squeeze all the water out. It could be blistered asparagus, generally ham. And for spices, something like uh, romance herbs or dill sometimes or some nutmeg. It's in a glass pan that I butter really well, and then I pour the half and half in eggs and let that sit overnight. And then I've experimented a couple of times with different ways to bake it in a bain-marie or like 250 for a while or 350, and it still comes out with that big pool of water in the middle. And then like 24 hours later, it's still edible, but it's just not very good. Is there any cheese in there? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I forgot. Cheese. Yes. Fontina, Jarlsberg, something of a more drier cheese that's good for melting. Huh. Well, Fontina and Jarlsberg should be fine. They are good melting cheeses. I wonder if you're overcooking it a bit. Are you following an actual ratio of ingredients from a cookbook, or are you just sort of making it up? Making it up. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know the, I, and in my head, I don't know the exact proportion of how much dairy product, you know, milk or half and half to how many eggs mm-hmm. to get the right texture. But that ratio is very important. So I would uh, look at a recipe to get a point of reference from a reliable Isn't source. Is it like two eggs per cup? Does that sound like the ratio you're using or not so much? Or you no. don't remember, you just sort of eyeball it? 
I definitely eyeball maybe six eggs and maybe a cup of half and half, but I feel almost like it's time to bump up to heavy cream. Oh, absolutely. You know, either trust Chris, I don't know if I would, or go research a recipe (laughs) and see if two eggs to one cup of half and half or heavy cream would be a good idea. Everything else sounds good. I mean, I think 350 would be fine. I think a lower temperature would be fine Mm -hmm. as long as you don't overcook it, but I think you have the wrong ratio. Do you have an instant read thermometer? I do. I would guess that if you took the temperature in the middle, you know, halfway down, the middle of the middle of the middle, it should be about Mm -hmm. 155, I would think, would be the right Mm -hmm. temperature, sort of like a cheesecake. If you overcook an egg mixture, you're going to push water out of the liquid. Yeah. And so it sounds like, as Sarah said, you're overcooking it. So I I would use an instant-read thermometer. The center should not be fully set. It should be a little jiggly. If it's fully set, it's overcooked. So it should be undercooked. And there's a lot of additional cooking out of the oven because don't forget you have a glass casserole, quite a lot of ingredients, cheese, milk, eggs. There's a lot of retained heat and it will continue cooking. So just think about it as mostly cooking it in the oven and finish cooking it on the counter. And definitely up the dairy and down the eggs. Yeah, definitely up the dairy. Yeah, and if you want to just really be creamy, go for the cream. Give that a shot, but I think it's just, as Sarah said, lack of dairy and uh, overcooking. Okay. Thanks so much, Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I loved it when you asked her, is she using a recipe? (laughs) She said, no, what, are you kidding me? (laughs) Just making this up. Well, good for her. Yeah. We like that kind of independence. And she's also, she perseveres. She does. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, Eating Through the Ages with Sola El Whaley, host of the History Channel's YouTube series, Ancient Recipes with Sola. That's coming up after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) 
Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Chef and internet personality Sola El Whaley is unearthing meals from history on her YouTube show, Ancient Recipes with Sola. The most ancient of all, a nettle and barley pudding stuffed inside of a cow intestine. We are going back further than we ever have before. Beyond ancient Rome, beyond Stonehenge, even beyond ancient Egypt. Yes, we are going back 8,000 years, all the way to the Stone Age, to recreate the oldest recipe ever. Well, maybe we think so. It's like really, really old, so we're going to go with it. Sola, welcome to Milk Street. Hello, thanks for having me. You know, you stole my idea. I, I For years, I wanted to do exactly what you're doing. What, uh, really? Well, I, I did a Fanny Farmer thing like 12 years ago where I cooked a whole bunch of recipes out of her book on a coal stove. And uh, it just got me really interested in how people used to cook because, you know, I'm so sick and tired of reading histories about kings and queens and armies. Mm-hmm. It's so much more interesting, and I think you'd agree, to find out how people really lived, right? Yeah, it's also very interesting how so much is the same. I mean, technology in cooking has changed, for sure. But even if a recipe sounds really crazy on paper, when I make it and taste it, I'm like, oh, this tastes really familiar. This tastes like Mm. spanakopita, or this tastes like a stew I've had. Like, We all still like the same kind of delicious food. Well, I was going to ask, too, um, having done a little bit of this, you know, even in the 19th century, you're looking at ingredients. On one of your shows, you you mentioned that sugar used to come in cones, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. or cream was different or meat was different. So Mm -hmm. the first issue for me is how do you figure out really what they intended? Because you might not quite understand what they meant by an ingredient or the ingredients change over time. How do you get close to what you think they meant by a recipe and and what the food was like? Well, it's actually a very long process to go from like, hey, we want to do this ancient recipe for Druid soul cakes till when we actually make it. There's a lot of people involved. A lot of people do research. And Hmm. the thing that's difficult with history is that the story is different depending on who it's coming from. Right. So we really try and look at different authors to try and make sure that we get the translations as accurate as we can with the information that we have right now. Well, can you give me an example or two of situations where you weren't absolutely sure which way to go on a recipe? Well, we recently did the first biryani. Mm -hmm. Um, And that one, there were different stories depending on whether it was written about in the Middle East or written about in Persia, or we were looking at texts from India, South India and North India, and everyone has a different story about where this dish came from. Hmm. So the goal is to try within the episode, try and weave in all of those narratives, which ultimately makes everybody angry. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. But the fact is, there's no 
right or wrong with these kinds of things because it is so much about what perspective you're looking at this history from. Do you find that there is no easy answer a lot of the time? You just have to do your best. The people have different opinions, but history is is less clear about things than people would hope. It it definitely is. I think everybody wants there to be like one clear cut story. This is where biryani came from. But there's very few dishes out there. I I would say there's no dishes out there where it just comes from one place and one person and one time. All food has moved across cultures. People move and then they take their recipes with them, but the ingredients might be different. So things are constantly evolving and changing. But that's why I think it's so fun because you can never stop researching one thing. But people hate it. Like the audience gets so mad and (laughs) I don't care because we do our best to do as much research as possible. And like, it's just, it's a difficult thing. And I think that it's really fun that we try and present as many perspectives as possible. Are there some cooking techniques you found in your research that people don't use as much today? Uh, For example, boiling, right? I mean, people stuff things in stomachs and boil them to make a pudding. Is boiling something that you think is particularly useful and wonderful that people don't do much today? Or are there any other techniques like that? Well, I think that a lot of food was cooked that way because you usually had one heat source. Right. Now we're lucky. We got four burners and they can range anywhere from low to high and everywhere in between. Um, so I think that it was just more practical to put everything in a pot and cook it all together. But nowadays, you know, I have a cast iron skillet and I can sear something at the same time as like stewing something and then bring it together. Personally, you know, I don't throw things into a pot and boil it all together because I don't have to. Well, let me give you an example. A turnspit or a clock jack in front of a fire, roasting meat with the drippings going down into Mm -hmm. potatoes or whatever you want to make below it. Some of those things actually... Roasting meat in front of a fire is a superior method of roasting meat instead of in an oven, right? I mean, that that would be one of my examples of things got worse, not better. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I I absolutely love cooking in front of fire. Nothing compares. We actually made um, this ancient Roman cheesecake. Hmm. So we did like a cheesecake showdown. There was an ancient Greek cheesecake versus an ancient Roman cheesecake. Right. And one of these cheesecakes... It seemed so simple. It was just a fresh cheese put inside of a testum, which is a portable terracotta oven. So it's just, it's almost like a, an ancient Dutch oven. And Mm. then you set it on top of coals and then you put coals on top. The bottom was lined with bay leaves. And then you put this like just cheese flour mixture right on top. And, Mm. and, you know, going in, I was like, this is going to be dry and bland and gross, but because of the flavor from the coals, those bay leaves kind of charred and infused the whole thing with this smoky bay Mm. flavor. And you got this nice variance of texture because it was hotter on the bottom. So it almost developed a crust. Hmm. When you slice it, it was mind-blowing. It looked just like a classic New York-style cheesecake. Hmm. But it was all because of the way it was cooked, because of that ancient Roman oven, which they actually let me bring home. And I use all the time now. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So... Were there one or two other recipes that you just found stellar but were would be hard to replicate in a modern kitchen? Okay, so one of my, my favorite recipes that we've done has actually been Mary Todd Lincoln's white almond cake. Yeah, I, saw, I, I watched you make that, and I, I love sponge cakes. that look fabulous. It was so much work, like grinding the nuts right. and whipping everything by hand. It was so delicious, like kind of blew everyone's mind. We made two of those because – You know, there was a swap and both were completely destroyed before we started shooting the next episode. (laughs) So that's always a good sign. But I came home and made it with almond flour and it is nowhere near as good. Well, can I ask a question? I I found in a Fannie Farmer book, beat eight or 10 egg whites, and it said for like half an hour. And and I think in the day, they just had these whisks made of, you know, sticks essentially Mm -hmm, bound mm -hmm. together. How long did it take you to whip all those egg whites in that recipe. So we had to turn off the cameras and we passed it around the crew. <laughs> okay, so a long time. Every single grip, producer, <laughs> director, everyone put in a few minutes with the whisk. Right. I think it took us about like half an hour. Yep, there it was you go. so worth it. And I and I feel like 
whipping it by hand slowly instead of on a machine, you right. get this really dense, even texture on the meringue right. that you just can't get when you do it quickly on a stand mixer. So, um, so let's talk about you. You went to the CIA, the Culinary Institute. You've worked with Joe Bastianich at Del Posto. Um, but you started out at the Outback Steakhouse, right? Well, okay. So I worked at almost every single chain restaurant you can think of. All of them. Cheesecake Factory, uh, BJ's. It's a deep dish pizza and brewery in mm -hmm. California. Uh, California Pizza Kitchen. Um, they're all exactly the same. <laughs> it's all a lot of like pre-prepared stuff and you're kind of assembling. Right. Um, but uh, I was a hostess at the Cheesecake Factory and it it is probably one of the hardest jobs I have ever had to date. Now, wh why is that particularly hard? It, well, th the dining room is huge, first of all. When I worked there, it was before we had like POS systems. So all of the seating was done on this huge sheet of like laminated paper. And on top of that, there's families just like yelling at you all the time. <laughs> like I was just like deer in the headlights staring at this like seating chart and then trying really hard to make these people happy. It's an incredibly hard job. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do have tremendous respect for people who do that, especially in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, apple pie, one of my favorite dishes of all time, the great test of a cook skill. You did a medieval version, and then you did sort of an applesauce Thomas Jefferson version. So the one thing you said was that the applesauce version actually sliced okay. So could you just describe how that's made? As it was so interesting. Oh, yeah. So that one, the apples were cut into pieces and stewed together with the skins and the seeds. And then it got really, really soft and tender and pushed through a fine mesh sieve and then that just got mixed with a little bit of sugar. It didn't have eggs, and yet it totally set up. And I think mm. it's because cooking it with the skins probably gave it some more pectin. More pectin, yeah. It was very aromatic and floral, which was really interesting. But actually, my favorite thing about that recipe was the crust, which was made similar to a flaky pie crust that you do today. You mm. know, you take the butter, rub it through. Right. But instead of water bringing it all together, it was egg white which I had never done before. Yeah, you mentioned that. I, I've never done that either. And, and so did it make it flakier? What, what, what did it do? It's incredible. It made it really crisp, huh. really crunchy, and the crust was almost like waterproof. You know how sometimes you blind huh. bake a crust and yep. brush it with egg? Yep. Yep. It like instantly does that on its own. Huh. It was so crispy, so flaky, and I do like to add egg white into my pie crust now. Right. You actually need kind of a lot of egg whites. But if I've got some around, I always put it in my pie crust now because I really do believe it. It makes a big difference. Really helps with the browning, which makes sense because egg whites are alkaline, right? And isn't that supposed to help with browning? Yes, that, that's why baking soda is often added to baked goods to make them brown better. Yeah. So, what was the hardest recipe to recreate for you? Either because the history was dubious or sketchy, or the actual technique was hard. You know, it was hard. The aspic. Hmm. We found a recipe that is one of the oldest. Was this calves' feet to make the gelatin? No, it was fish heads. <laughs> okay, that surprised me. How did that work out? According to the recipe, it was like a thousand fish heads used to make this aspic, <laughs> and then all of the fish tongues and lips are suspended within it. <laughs> the hardest part was that they made it with carp, and... Buying carp heads is especially difficult. So we had to buy a whole case of carp and remove the heads ourselves. Um, and then it was really hard to tell when it was done. Right. And it was really hard to get those tongues and lips off while they stayed intact. Tongue, fish tongues and lips are really small. Like I've never really thought about a fish lip. It, but what was the net result? Did it aspect well, set up properly? So in, in the video, you see 10 minutes. You're just like fish head. Aspic, boom. Um, but <laughs> there was like so much that happened that you didn't see on camera. It was very stressful getting there. But we did it. We got there. And we all took a fish home. So after doing so many episodes of this, has your cooking changed at all? I mean, do you now crave more lamb? You know, then because so many cultures serve lamb. You you mix sweet and savory more than you used to. Has any of this changed you in your, your kitchen? 
you know, my cooking has always been really all over the place, very diverse. So that hasn't changed. I think the one thing that's changed, though, is that just the way I look at anything that anyone says is a fact. <laughs> I just right. kind of, I, I like to dig deeper because everyone has a different story. And I think it's cool to find out all of them and like bring the story together. So it's been a real pleasure. Um, we both share a love of history and food. Um, you do just a great job. And thanks so much for being with us here at Milk Street. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was fun. That was Sola Awaley. She's a chef and the host of the History Channel's YouTube series, Ancient Recipes with Sola. Have you ever noticed that history chronicles the lives of the rich and powerful? Well, they were the only ones who had enough money to get a scribe to write down their stories as well as their recipes. According to Apicius, ancient Romans were dining on tuna, ostrich ragu, roast wild boar, and flamingo tongues. But most Romans ate much simpler fare. Roman soldiers carried their own wooden bowls to make a form of porridge, and Caesar ate the simple fare along with his troops. So someday I want to write a history of the common man, which will be a lot more interesting, I think, than the history of the rich and famous. At least Caesar had the good sense to eat mush until he decided to become emperor and then, of course, dine on flamingo tongues. You know, some things never change. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Here's Lynn Clark with this week's recipe, Korean Spicy Chilled Noodles. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. You know, pasta salads are at the bottom of my food pyramid, (laughs) (laughs) like below the bottom. But there are many cultures that have, you know, cold noodles. So let's take the Korean version, the Korean spicy chilled noodles. How is it made and why should it be part of, you know, my repertoire? Well, first of all, the problem with pasta salad, at least American pasta salad, is it uses pasta, (laughs) which is great for hot sauces because it really absorbs those sauces really bad when you're serving something cold that's going to sit out for a while because it continues to absorb vinaigrette or the creamy dressing and makes the pasta itself really mushy so the difference here is that we're using an asian noodle so these are somen noodles in japan they're somyeon noodles in korean they're made with asian flour which has less protein and starch than an all-purpose flour would have, which means it doesn't absorb as well, which in this case is a good thing. So because of that, we want our dressing to have a ton of flavor. So we're combining gochujang, vinegar, soy sauce, sugar, sesame oil, sesame seeds, and kimchi juice. All of those are really kind of bold, powerful flavors, and they're going to add a lot of flavor to this otherwise just simple cold noodle salad. It's acidic, it's sweet, it's spicy, uh, savory, Mm. a really, really boldly flavored sauce. These noodles, you know, like a sober udon noodle cook in just like two, three minutes. Very fast. fast. So two minutes really is all you need. They have a really nice kind of toothsome chew to them already. Then you drain them, cover them with some ice cubes, and then rinse it with cold water. You really want to make sure if there is any excess starch, you're rinsing that off. Otherwise, the noodles will get gummy. Then we mix the noodles with the dressing, top it with some sliced cucumber, matchstick-sized cucumber, some scallions, sesame seeds, and those add a lot of crunch, but they also add a little bit of cooling because this is pretty spicy. So is this our first five-minute recipe? <laughs> it seems like. I think you might be right, because we're really just whisking together some ingredients, cooking noodles for two yeah. minutes, quickly chilling it. You don't even have to necessarily put it in the refrigerator. And it's going to be so different than what you know as pasta salad. Mm, sounds good. I'm doing this one tonight. You should. Perfect on a hot summer day, for sure. Korean spicy chilled noodles, a 10-minute recipe. Big flavor uh, and great on a summer evening. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for Korean spicy chilled noodles at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, we're discussing the language of pie with our friends Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett. 
from Away With Words. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to take a few more calls with Sarah Moulton. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lori. Hi, Lori. Where are you calling from? Mom Scott, Mass. Okay. And how can we help you today? I have made risotto successfully throughout the 25 years I've owned my um, Kuhn Rikon pressure cooker. And the last time I made it, I decided to substitute one cup of the three and a half cups of vegetable stock with white wine. So I did the same method, which is I cook shallots and olive oil first, then I add my dried herbs and the um, arborio rice to coat in oil. I then add the stock, and I cook that until it begins to boil, then I add cubed butternut squash. Over high heat, I bring it to low pressure, the first red ring on my pressure cooker, and then I lower the heat just enough to maintain low pressure for seven minutes. Then I do the quick release method to release the steam, and then I unlock the cover. But this last time when I made it, it didn't go up to low pressure like it routinely does. So eventually what I had to do was increase the burner heat considerably. And then it advanced to the second red ring, which I didn't want, and that's some 15 PSI. So I didn't dare wait for the seven minutes. So I decided to immediately release the steam. So it came out sort of mushy. (laughs) I wasn't sure what to expect from the wine. So my question is, should I not cook with wine in the pressure cooker? Something struck me, which is when you add wine to risotto on top of the stove, you know, you uh, brown the onions, you add the rice, you coat the Mm -hmm. rice, you add the wine, and you simmer it till it's completely evaporated, the idea being to Mm. get the raw taste of the alcohol out of there, and then you start slowly adding the broth. Right. So, you know, my main problem with your recipe would be that the wine wasn't cooked down. But I don't really know what chemistry happened that it didn't get to pressure. Chris, do you have any thoughts? Yes, I do. Three things. Uh, in Italy, 
they cook risotto over fairly high heat and they stir like crazy, but they do it in like 10 or 15 minutes. It's done very quickly. Mm-hmm. Two, I agree about the wine. I would reduce the wine in a separate saucepan, mm-hmm. like a cup of wine, reduce it down to three or four tablespoons, and that's mm-hmm. added as a flavoring, and you could put that into mm-hmm. the pot at the beginning or at the end when you take the top off. Thirdly, mm-hmm. I don't get the science of this. I'm with Sarah because wine's 12 to 15% alcohol. The percentage of alcohol among the three and a half cups is tiny. It's like 3%. Yeah. So alcohol yeah. and water will evaporate at different temperatures, turn to steam, that mm-hmm. is. I can't understand. One thing you said that was interesting, though, you said you finally turned up the heat and went up to the second ring, which right. was too high. So it obviously went by the first ring, right? You were able to right. get it up to temperature. Right, but it was just strange that when I do long. it without the wine, I do it to the first red ring, right. and I know how to control it so it doesn't go higher. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for it to go up one ring, and it wouldn't. So that's when I increased the heat, thinking something's wrong with this. Years ago, someone called the show, and they were cooking a goose or a duck or something, and they put a lot of wine in it with a covered container in the oven, and they opened the door, and it exploded. And that's because the alcohol in the wine had turned into, you know, steam. steam and ignited. The upper element hit it and ignited. So the only thing I can say is it's the alcohol, but it's such a small amount of alcohol with three and a half cups of liquid. I just can't imagine that would make the difference. Can I just throw something out? In the beginning part, you do saute the onions in the pressure cooker, right? Yes. Why don't you keep it open, add the wine, reduce the wine down, and then add the amount of broth that you normally would? Do you think I should put a cup in? I mean, do you think that amount is fine when I do it, like you say in the beginning? But reduce it down to two or three tablespoons. And do it over gentle heat. You shouldn't boil the wine. It should be more of a low simmer. I would get away from alcohol in a pressure cooker as a basic concept. Kept thinking about that exploding duck. Yeah. So, yeah, I like your idea. Thank you, Lori. Thanks, Lori. Okay. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with dinner, give us a call anytime. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Anne from Albany. How are you? Great. Thank you so much for taking my call. Sure. My question is, if I find out after I've taken a loaf cake, or any kind of cake really, out of the oven and let it cool, and later cut into it and find that the inside isn't as completely done as it should be, which happened to me recently, is there anything one can do to recook the middle or try to salvage the cake? Now, when you tested it to determine if it was cooked while it was still in the oven, what did you do? Use a skewer? I did use a skewer, and to my eyes, it came out clean. You know, some cakes, a few right. crumbs can cling to the skewer. I think that in this particular loaf cake, um, which was a blood orange olive oil cake from right. Smitten Kitchen, the skewer may have come out clean because it was so gooey in the inside right. that it wasn't even crumbs sticking to it. So I took it out of the oven, even though I'd followed all of the directions. And later I tried covering it with tinfoil and putting it back in the oven, and nothing no. changed about the inside. It, it still remained a gooey mess, not solid. I have a good tip for you, which is using an instant read thermometer. I use that to determine when bread is done, cakes are done, cheesecakes are done, everything. In addition to a skewer, especially with an olive oil cake, I put into the center halfway down an instant read thermometer. It should read about 195-ish or something like that. And uh, that that's really a foolproof way to know when your cake is done. You should try it with that cake and make sure that's the right temperature. But that's a really perfect way. Because you're right, sometimes skewers go in, like a chocolate cake, for example, you want actually to have it come out with a lot of chocolate on it because you don't want to overcook chocolate. But Mm -hmm. every cake's a little different and it's really a rough system. I would use an instant read thermometer and that's really the best way to do it. What kind of pan were you using? A Nordic Ware loaf pan. Nordic Ware is good. Yeah. So maybe your oven just wasn't quite as hot as you thought it was. Maybe it just needed a little longer. But, uh, you know, the other thing I would say, if it's an olive oil, blood orange, olive oil is oily. So I could see the skewer coming out looking like it was clean, even if it wasn't. A couple of things to look for are the sides of the loaf cake starting to come away slightly from the pan, right? You should see that. 
And did you just press down on the top too? I just press down on the top with your fingers or a fork and just make sure that you know, indentation doesn't stick, that it'll bounce back. Yeah, also in terms of if it was undercooked, the only way to remedy that is to slice it and toast it. Because if it's like a day later and you decide to throw it in the oven, there's no way then the center will be insulated by the already cooked sides. And plus, which at this point, you've got raw dough in there hanging out for 24 hours, not a good thing. Toast it and then put some ice cream on it and serve it for dessert. Or you could slice it, toast it, and even freeze it after it's cooled at that point and then use it down the road in other recipes. Sounds delicious. It does. It's too bad it didn't and, work and, out. And never trust baking times, by the way. Yeah. They're never right. Right. Great. On that cheerful note. All right. Thank you Thanks. so much for your wonderful advice. I yeah. love your show. Thank you. And I'm really glad to benefit from your wisdom. Thank Thanks, you so Anne. much. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Bill Schultz from Atlanta, Georgia, and I have a tip. Um, your advice on how to roast eggplant was great, but there's one more tip that could be very helpful, which is picking the right eggplant in the first place. I learned relatively recently that eggplants have a male and female version, and the female version, not illogically, has more eggs or little seeds, and you don't want that. So the best thing to do before you cook your eggplant is pick the right one, which is the male eggplant. And the way you can tell the difference is by looking at the rounded end with the belly button. And the male eggplants have little round belly buttons, and the female eggplants have more of a, uh, a line uh, down them. So look for the little round belly button at the end of your eggplant, and you'll have fewer seeds and more flesh and a better eggplant regardless of how you roast it. Thanks. By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip right here on Milk Street Radio, go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. This is Milk Street Radio. Right now, let's chat with Martha Barnett and Grant Barrett from Away With Words. Grant Martha, what's up? Chris, this week we're enjoying the aroma of pies. It's wafting through the English language. There are all these expressions involving pies. Hmm. For example, pie chart. Oh, there you go. There you go. Yeah, it used to be called a circular graph, and of course that's really handy for representing proportions. Um, But in other languages, for example in Spanish, it's sometimes called grafico de pizza, you can imagine what that is. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's good. And Portuguese is similar, also Gajico de pizza. And in German, it's a cake diagram, a torten diagram. And the exception to all of these is French. As you might imagine, they go for cheese. They call it a camembert. <laughs> <laughs> a little squidgy around the edges. The, the French are never going to follow in anyone else's footsteps. <laughs> and that's what we love about them. So they put a camembert in their PowerPoints. And so there are more than pie charts cooling on the windowsills of the English language. And one of them is the hotel pie. And this is a very hmm. rare term for a toothpick. Uh, probably what? because hotels kind of cheap out on their meals. And so instead of the last thing you eat being a dessert oh, like a pie, the yeah. last thing you eat is a sliver of <laughs> hotel wood, the pie. <laughs> also sometimes known as dining room lumber or dining room quill or even timber sauce. <laughs> I like dining room lumber. I, I think that's good. And, of course, we have apple pie order, which is when everything is as it should be, uh, organized and clean and put away. You know, and there is a prank you can pull. Did you ever go to summer camp, Chris, and have your bed short-sheeted? I had many things happen to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that actually happened to me at home once, but not at summer camp. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I think my mother did it, yeah. Uh, Oh, your mother short-sheeted you. That's a whole other episode. (laughs) It sure is. It sure is. Uh, For your therapist. (laughs) Well, there are other terms for short sheeting a bed, and they are making it an apple pie bed or an apple turnover. And as you can Uh, imagine, like a turnover, it's because the sheet is folded over in the middle, just like the dough would be folded over in the middle. So if anybody doesn't know what short sheeting is, because I don't know if people still do this, this is when the, the sheet is folded over, so you stick your legs in, and you feel like a giant in a doll's crib because <laughs> you can't really get into the bed completely, and then you're all crunched up at the top. Yeah. And if somebody did that to you, you might punch them in the pie chopper. Uh, in other words, the mouth. 
And that's old slang. It goes back over more than 100 years. It's very similar in its impoliteness to pie hole and cake oh, yes, hole. Yes, pie hole. I, I love the cake hole. That's what a great title that is. And then, of course, there's pie in the sky, which is an right. unrealistic idea or impossible goal. And that goes back to a song by a 19th century labor activist who was parodying hymns that offer the promise of help in the afterlife, you know, but nothing oh. in the here and now. There's, oh. a, there's a line in it that goes, work and pray, live on hay, you'll get pie in the sky when you die. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's funny. You you guys are so upbeat. And once in a while, Martha just throws in one of these little <laughs> dark things. It's true. To see if I notice. Uh, thanks, guys. Now I know pie in the sky, which I, I think is actually a wonderful thing to uh, strive for. Thank you. Hashtag life goals, right? Thank you, Chris. <laughs> that was Martha Barnett and Grant Barrett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to know more about Milk Street, go to 177MilkStreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch our TV show, and learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet, on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.